Yeah, how do I? Oh, okay, hold on. Did you bring your Garfield mic? Is that why it is? You didn't bring the real one? You brought your novelty. <laughs> no, you know what? I changed all those things on one. It's still red. Oh, there it is. All right. Whoa, there he is. All good. Well, today should be a very newsy edition of 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Canyon AT4X. As always, Merrick Delich and the man who puts the source in sorcery. You like that one, Elliot? <laughs> very good. Elliot Friedman. I thought about that one on my way back from Vegas the other day. It was about three o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, I'm going to try to come up with a creative way to introduce Elliot on the next podcast. What do I associate Elliot with? I associate Elliot with sources. Hmm, what would the root of that be? Maybe sorcery. Let's throw it out there. It was one of those flights, Elliot, where I just couldn't sleep. And so that's where I came up with that. You'd been up a lot. As a matter <laughs> of fact, there is a photo, which I will not tweet out, circulating oh, of Jeff on the way down. <laughs> I was in livestock row. I was in the very back, the last row in the airplane, in the corner. Yes. As someone slept on me. <laughs> no reclining seat. No Tough one, Merrick. Tough one. That's okay. I tried to watch as many John Wick movies as I could to pass the time. (laughs) Uh, Let's start off with a three-way trade. The Columbus Blue Jackets, the Los Angeles Kings, and the Philadelphia Flyers. And there was a tricky sort of Rubik's Cube to get there. But by the end, here's what it looked like. Columbus receives defenseman Ivan Provorov. The Los Angeles Kings get Hayden Hodgson, Kevin Connaughton. They retain, by the way, 30% of the Ivan Provorov deal. The Philadelphia Flyers get netminder Cal Peterson, Sean Walker, uh, Helga Granz. Uh, First-round draft pick from Columbus this season. That is 22nd overall. Columbus's second-round pick, another 24 or 25, and LA's second-round pick. Your thoughts on this one. Where do you want to start here? Which team do you want to start with? Uh, I think we start with the team that got the big player in the deal. I want to get to the rebuild with Philadelphia and what's next for LA. But let's talk about Provorov and CBJ. Okay, let's do that. Columbus here, uh, they're looking for D. They are out looking hard for D. You know, for example, one of the things uh, I'd heard, we mentioned on Saturday Night Show that uh, teams were calling the Devils seeking uh, permission to either talk to Severson or trade for his rights. Mm. And I think Columbus was one of the teams that was looking at that too. So they're definitely looking for defensemen and they want someone with term. Like That's one of the things that Columbus really likes about this is they get a player who's locked in for a couple of years and that really appeals to them so they get Provorov he's the type of player they're looking for right now just a defenseman they have a bit of control of and I'm not surprised in the least that they targeted him as the kind of player they're looking for because in addition to Severson there were also some rumors with them and the possibility of someone like Orlov too and Kekalainen is being aggressive in his pursuit of defensemen there's no question about that so I'm not surprised at all are you prepared because this is where my brain went right away and perhaps for the obvious reasons are you prepared to make the connection between the columbus blue jackets hiring mike babcock and them acquiring ivan Provorov? and the reason i mention that is back at the 2015 nhl draft that's the uh, the connor mcdavid or maybe if slash when he wins the stanley cup we'll call it the jack eichel draft dare i say the toronto maple leafs had an issue at the draft table had an issue leading up to the draft they were selecting fourth overall and mark hunter who was heading the draft 
was you know making making the decision, and he wanted Mitch Marner. Uh, at that point, no one knew more about Mitch Marner and junior hockey than Mark Hunter, and he was going to go with Mitch Marner. Uh, Mike Babcock, however, uh, valued a young defenseman, and there were more than a few in that draft. There was also Wierenski and Hannafin, mm-hmm. but it is very much believed that Ivan Provorov was the defenseman that Mike Babcock stumped for at that draft at the Leafs table. I have heard that story, by the way, about all three defensemen. At one time, I've heard it about Provorov. Another time, I heard it about Wierenski. And the third time, I heard it about Hannafin. Mm-hmm. Actually, to be honest, Jeff, yeah. the first guy I actually heard it about was Hannafin. And then I heard it about the other two. And the story I was always told is that Mark Hunter, who was running the draft for the Maple Leafs, said, do you know what's in my contract? And Babcock said, what? And he goes, the right to make the draft pick. Mm-hmm. And he picked Mitch Marner, which turned out to be a great pick for Toronto. You, you know what else? As a sidebar, let's go down a, a side street here quickly. Uh, the Arizona Coyotes selected third overall. They went with Dylan Strom. Mm-hmm. Dave Tippett, who was the head coach at that point, much like Mike Babcock, although whether it was uh, Provorov or Hannafin or Wierenski, Dave Tippett very much was trying to convince scouts, I guess Tim Bernhardt would have been the head scout at that point, to take Ivan Provorov. So the Maple Leafs weren't the only one. The other thing Arizona did at that draft was they could have traded for Dougie Hamilton. And they didn't because they could have made that deal. And I remember interviewing Don Maloney on the floor after that draft was done. And he did say, yes, we could have had a deal for Dougie Hamilton that would have given Boston the third overall pick. But he said, you look at our conference and you look at our division and you look at, we have to play against Anze Kopitar and we have to play against Joe Thornton and we have to play against Ryan Getzlaff. We have to get a big center. So he chose to keep the pick and take Dylan Strom. I understood his rationale completely at the time. So there were a lot of rumors going around about that draft. And Babcock is a believer in that. I'm not, I'm not surprised that, that he would be interested in a player like Provorov. And look, he's watching the games right now. You've talked about it, Jeff. You need big mobile D that make it very hard for opponents to get through your zone. You don't necessarily have to be a killer, yeah. but you have to make people weave a maze to score against you. You know, there's one scout that I that I spoke to who was in that area of drafting Ivan Provorov back in 2015. And you know how him and his team referred to Ivan Provorov? Mm-hmm. Smaller pronger. That's what they called him. Now, he didn't have that edge that Pronger had, but he said all the things that Pronger does, the long bomb passes, the defend really well, the big stick, the whole deal, he said, this guy is smaller Pronger. We got to get him in our organization. Provorov in Philadelphia, it was divorce time. Everything that happened last year in Philly, everything from the pride jersey to, you know, rumors that either he'd asked out or would welcome a change of scenery, it was time for Ivan Provorov to go somewhere else and to start again. And uh, I think it was time for the Flyers, too, to move on from Provorov. So I don't think anybody here is going to regret it when it comes to Philadelphia or Provorov. I think they recognized it was time for new partners and a new marriage. Okay, before we get to the Philadelphia Flyers, the team that traded Provorov, and we'll get to the uh, the rebuild in action here, your thoughts on what LA did? And was it, I don't want to say nothing more than, but was the main reason all these deals happened the way that they did 
because they need to clear cap space. A hundred percent. And never mind a hundred percent, Jeff. I'll go a thousand. I'll go a thousand percent. Look, someone's been to Vegas. Okay, very good. Even from before the day they traded for Gavrikov, they've been trying to sign him. You'll remember when Gavrikov was available from Columbus, teams had permission to talk to him and the Kings tried to sign him to a deal. I think they were trying to sign him to like a four or five year deal, but they just couldn't get to a number that Gavrikov was happy with. Now it's been reported in multiple places today that Gavrikov wants a two year deal. You know, I'm not surprised by that. Like Gavrikov is a really unique guy. Columbus wanted to sign him. He didn't sign. You know, he was really angry by what happened around the trade deadline with the Boston deal. He was upset. He was made to sit out as long as as he did. He was upset that the trade didn't happen. And, you know, he's made it very clear he wants to be in a winning situation and he wants to be assigned a short-term deal where, you know, he'll be a free agent again in a couple of years where the cap goes up. And I have no doubt his representative has told him that that's not the smartest thing to do, but he doesn't care. Like this is a, from what I understand about Gavrikov, he's a pretty unique guy. He marches to his own drummer and he'll make his own decisions. So I do think that's going to get done. I assume it's going to be a little bit of a bigger number. Like I heard the Kings were just under 5 million and he said no when they were talking about the four or five year deal. So I assume it's going to be a two-year in the fives, high fives, mid fives, maybe six. I'm not exactly sure here, but that's going to get it done. And, you know, the Kings last year, when they were talking to Arizona about Chikrin, they wanted Peterson in that deal. They wanted Arizona to take that money. And I don't know what happened. I just know that there were some hard feelings uh, there, like, I, I think the Kings thought they had a deal. Arizona apparently said we never had an agreement on this. I don't know exactly what happened there, but obviously Philly is ready to weaponize their space. They did it. And, you know, as we talked earlier, there were rumors that like Arvidsson was out there for the Kings to clear money, but now they have some finances to do what they need to do. And it'll be interesting to see where they go in the goaltender route. Are they going to go Corpus Allo or are they going to go somewhere else? Now we're talking about goaltenders here. Let's let's get to Philadelphia because the Carter Hart question is very much out there. But before we get there, uh, the Philadelphia Flyers, look, if you had any doubts about what Daniel Briere's plan was with the Philadelphia Flyers after hearing him speak various times, Mm -hmm. this is his first trade and this is a trade for the future very much. So they move out Provorov to your point. It was time. Yeah. Cal Peterson comes in. Sean Walker, the defenseman comes in who just, by the way, as a side note is uh pretty quick buddies with Morgan Frost. Mm-hmm. Uh, they train together, skate together, work out with uh, Jared Pignatero uh, in the off season. They're fast buddies uh, here in the area where I live. Anyhow, uh, Helga Granz comes in prospect, second round draft pick of the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, defenseman, good skater, uh, heavy shot, like real good, hard shot. The one thing when I, I checked out there after the trade, you know, what does he need more of? Someone told me intensity. So John Tortorella can bring out intensity in players, and you saw that with Owen Tippett. You wonder if he can do the same thing with uh, with Helga Granz. A first-round draft pick from Columbus, that is this year's 22nd overall, a second round pick, another 24 or 25, and LA's second round draft pick. This is eyes to the future, Elliot. It absolutely is. And it's, it's exactly what, well, 
what someone called him today, Big Brass Ones Briere said oh, he wow. was going to do. Holy alliteration, Batman. <laughs> I, you know, I love the alliteration, so I'm, I'm happy to use it. It's exactly what he said he was going to do, and yeah. he did it. And, you know, maybe we have an early contender for the Macklin Celebrini pick in next year's draft. Philly is staking its case for, mm. for number one. We haven't even gotten to this year's draft. We're already talking about next year's draft. But, you know, he said he was going to do it, and, and now he's doing it. And uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Hart. Now, you mentioned Hart here. I'm getting some very, very different feedback on what's going on here. I've got some people saying it's nowhere near close, and I've got some people saying they thought it was getting pretty hot. So... What this says to me is that he's out there, everyone knows he's available, and people are kind of picking at the flyers and saying, okay, you know, what are we going to do here? I think there's going to be some teams here that we haven't thought about. You know, someone suggested to me Montreal, maybe. They have Jake Allen for another year, Sam Montembeau. Uh, had a really good season and a really good world, but Hart's got a high ceiling. But I will say this. I, I had a few people really point at Toronto. Now, the interesting thing about this is I always wonder because, you know, Tree Living is the GM in Toronto now, and he makes a lot of calls. Like, he's in on everything. And one of the things I kind of remembered was now that he's here, we're going to hear Toronto being involved in more things simply because I think he is a guy who really looks out there for what's available. So sometimes I look at this and I say, all right, like this is him just putting his feelers out as opposed to anything serious. Now, like I said, Jeff, I've had some real mixed messages on this one. I had one denial it wasn't going to be Toronto, but I had some other people say, just keep looking at it. And, you know, the, the one challenge here is, let's say it was Toronto. They have to do something with Matt Murray. Well, Philly's off the board now. Like, it would be easy if they wanted to trade for Carter Hart, say, okay, you take Matt Murray. Well, Philly just did that with Cal Peterson. So if Toronto is going to be in this, that means you're letting go of Samsonov and Wool is your other goalie next year, but you have to find something to do with Murray. And that's the one thing I do think that if, 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 if Toronto's going to do this, they have to have a plan for their other goalie. A lot of people are talking Buffalo, and I think Buffalo is just going to be rumored in every goaltender deal until they come out and either say we're making a trade or we're, we're going with what we have. I just think that's the nature of the game. I heard some people talk about Ottawa. That was denied to me. I think everybody knows that Danny Briere is open for business. What I get a disagreement on is how close mm -hmm. any of this is. And that that's going to be the most fascinating thing over the next few days. You know which team I really wonder about here? Who's that? With Carter Hart, the San Jose Sharks. That's a team that doesn't want us to take a step back, but they know they have to start to really turn this team over. There's not going to be a classic teardown. And with someone like Carter Hart, who's 24 years old, 
Like you're not going with a kid here. I know he's, you know, restricted free agent with Arbright's next season, but Reimer's a UFA. They have Kakinen for one more season. Then he's a UFA out of San Jose. We kept here and they want more defense and they need goaltenders as well. I don't know. I just lob it out there for a consideration on a hockey talk podcast. I have to think there is going to be a lot of teams at least looking at this. And, you know, you mentioned goalies. Look at all the goalies who are in play right now. There's Hellebuck. There's Gibson. Yeah. There's Hart. Jari. Everything's now completely different in Pittsburgh because they've got a new boss there. But, you know, I heard Jari when they were talking during the season, you know, he wanted some term, like five to six years. So, I mean, I don't know where that's going to go. You want to throw Dan Vladar out there? I don't know. Like, one of the things. Dustin Wolf's playing next year. I just wonder at the very least if Calgary and Markstrom have a conversation. And Markstrom has complete control. And I know this is going to, like, burn up the city of Calgary, but I just don't think Craig Conroy is doing his job if he doesn't at least have that conversation. Mm-hmm. The other name I'd like to add here is Saros. Nashville did have some conversations about him at the deadline. I think with the Kings, the way that it's kind of going there, I think it would take a big offer, but I think if something did come, they would at least consider it. Uh, I, I was told that, uh, that that one was very unlikely to occur. Not saying those conversations didn't happen because they absolutely did. I was just told that that one was a a highly unlikely i would agree with you i think you would have to come at them with a great offer listen what did you and i do on trade deadline day we chased saros rumors yeah right because that name was very much out there there's a lot of goalies out there everybody thinks gustafson's gonna resign in minnesota that's gonna get done Mm -hmm. but i think there's a lot of movement a lot of movement with the goalies and so i mean we'll see where this goes like there's different ages, there's different contract statuses. I mean, depending on a team out there needing a goalie who they they really think is their guy, you're going to have options here. It's a couple in Carolina, Elliot. Yeah, Anderson, Ranta, <laughs> yeah. There's options out there. And there might even be an Aiden Hill, uh, by the way. We're going to get to the uh, the Vegas Florida Panthers series here in a, in a couple of moments, but more uh, more news from around the NHL first. Uh, a couple of days ago, you wrote about Alex DeBrinket of the Ottawa Senators and that organization doing their due diligence, seeing what's out there, what the marketplace is. Uh, he's someone who's poised to become an unrestricted free agent, not next year, but the year after. We all know there's new ownership coming in. Uh, that'll bring with it various management complications, etc. What is the latest with Alex DeBrinket? You know what that writing that story was like, Jeff? I knew what what it's like for Batman to go up against the Riddler. I was talking about the like the new uh, Batman version, the Robert Pattinson and the most recent one, the bad guy was the Riddler. Because as I was researching that story, everyone was speaking to me in codes. Hang on, hang on, hang on one second. Who's the Riddler and Robert Pattinson? Paul Dano. Right, I forgot the name of the actor. That's right, Paul Dano, you're right. But everyone was speaking in codes. They're like, well, you've got to find out, but they're exploring what to do and things like that. (laughs) Basically, it was a euphemism of they're probably going to trade him, but you have to be careful 
because, you know, there's always a chance that they don't, but th- there certainly appears to be a feeling around the league that it's much more likely Debrink is going to get traded than not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be fair, there were some people who said to me, there's no chance he's resigning there, but I had some other people say, don't go there because they, they think that, you know, some of those guys really want to try to convince him to stay because they think he could be a real important part of their team for a long time. But the bottom line is, and I completely understand this from Debrinket's point of view, is he's not signing until he understands, for at least for long term, until he understands who the new owner is going to be and what the plan is. And we're not going to know that uh, anytime soon. Like even if one group suddenly gets, okay, you have the right to negotiate to make the sale, it's still going to take two or three months to sort that out. So Ottawa's made it very clear they at least have to have to have an idea of who's interested by the draft at the end of the month. So, you know, they're doing their work there. And I think there is interest. Like For Debrinkit, there'd be tons of interest. With that release, I, I look at the honestly, Elliot. I look at the Brinkett and I say, mm-hmm. on a team that played the way that the Chicago Blackhawks used to play, mm-hmm. and that is that strong, heavy possession game, hold on to the puck, and you know, get it to the Brinkett, just shoot it whenever it's on your blade, as opposed to a, a dump and chase team, a go, you know, uh, fetch and catch. I think the Brinkett just sings on any team that wants to hold the puck as much as possible. I mean, choose your team around the NHL that's like that. I, I think the Brinkett is, would be out, an outstanding addition. There'll be huge interest. Absolutely. And, and like, I'll, I'll say this. I don't know that this is where he's going to end up going, but there's a lot of focus on those like central area teams. Like, well, I shouldn't say that because Detroit's not in the central, but they're central-ish. We'll call them that, central-ish. Like Detroit, St. Louis. Like I had one guy say to me that, that's a Doug Armstrong player. Like that's a guy that Doug Armstrong would want. So those are some of the teams that people are kind of focusing on. But obviously, I think there's a ton of interest. See, I kind of look at I kind of look at the Carolina Hurricanes. I really do. <laughs> that just screams Hurricanes to me. But. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. But the the Hurricanes to me seem like the kind of team that would rent him for a year. I don't know that they would sign him to what he's going to get in the free agent market. Okay, the other Ontario team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and we continue to read headlines about the future of the core four. What if they stay, Elliot? Well, you know, the one thing I wanted to mention about this was I had a very interesting phone call with someone about all this stuff about, you know, who's signing for what and and everything. And, And they said to me that they believe that one of the things that came out of this season was that... The, the Toronto wanted to de-emphasize the core four. What does that mean? Well, that's a great question, Jeff, and I'm going to answer it for you. I'm sorry I interrupted. Not that the organization feels anything negative towards those players, but I think there was a feeling amongst like just the entire group, like other players on the team, some of the coaching staff, the front office and the organization, that there's too much about them too much about the core four and then i don't know what do you call them the other 19 they felt it interfered in the growth of the team and one of the things i heard that was talked about was if you take a look at like the third and fourth line over the last few years there's been a lot of turnover and what someone indicated to me was the feeling was 
that they haven't done a good enough job as a group, like everybody, creating an identity for other players on the roster. And I want to stress, I don't think this is about jealousy. I don't believe it's about jealousy, Jeff. Mm -hmm. But what I think it is about is if you're going to win, you've got to win with 23, not with 4 plus 19. I want people to be careful with this, not to use it to rip the four guys, because I don't think it's that. I think it's just that they have to get away from that. And I believe some of the depth players may have talked about this, is that they feel it gets in the way of forming a team identity. And some of that you're not going to get away from because in the media, we're going to talk about the core four, right? So you can't escape it, but can you do a better job of creating an identity around some of the other players in the roster? And I heard that's a big thing that they're going to try to work on. You see, I've always just assumed, maybe wrongly, but I don't think so because I'm arrogant that way. No, um, I, I've always just assumed, Elliot, that it's been that way, this constant shuffling in and shuffling out of players wasn't necessarily done because they wanted to focus on the big four and these are the identity makers and this is who the Maple Leafs are. I kind of looked at all the shuffling in and out as economic necessity and the uh, the new school idea that if you have a bottom six player and that player surpasses expectations, you don't financially reward that player. You go out and get another one on a value contract because the NHL universe supplies a lot of these players. I kind of looked at that lack of identity deeper in the lineup, more out of just economic necessity more than anything else. You think I'm off base on that? I don't think you're off base on it, but I think it's something that they, like I heard it's something that came up. Like I understand it. I trust me. I understand it. You look at, I don't know, take your, the Islanders, for example. A little bit later, we're going to mention Lou Lamarillo, who, who, uh, who finally spoke. And, you know, you look at that fourth line who have been together outside. There was a blip on the radar when Matt Martin went to Toronto, but essentially they've been together for years. Or you look at, you know, the old, remember the old Merlot line and how long they were together and how much of identity mm-hmm. that had? Like there's some great bottom six line. Like I understand completely what you're saying. I just assume that the Maple Leafs were never able to do that just bluntly because they couldn't afford to pay the guys. I don't even think it's so much about pay. I think it's about emboldening other people in your lineup. And why I think they've really decided to attack that is because, and I was looking at it today, look at all the different people that they have in the last few years have been on their third and fourth line. Oh yeah, revolving door. And I think one of the things they're trying to find out is, was it just good intentions gone bad like everybody came in with good intentions or could they do a better job of creating roles for these people Mm. like i think leaf fans and you know who watch them closely like there were some of them that were driven uh crazy by the fact that keith would use the camp line in offensive zone draws in the playoffs and i actually thought that was about him trying to do that Trying to create a fourth line that had, or a third line, whatever you want to call it, that had some identity to it. But just overall, I've heard that they are committed to less oxygen on the core four Hmm. and more about building the team around them. And like I said, the person said to me, it wasn't anything about these were bad guys necessarily, but it's like there's so much talk in that market about it 
that they think it has internally it's affected how even they talk about them and you can't have four plus 19 you've got to be a full 23 okay to the calgary flames is there anything new on the coaching you mentioned craig conroy a couple of seconds ago and doing due diligence and talking to people and talking to players what about talking to prospective coaches i don't know this for sure but here's who i think some of the group is I think Ryan Huska is still there. I think Mitch Love is still there. I think Travis Green is still there. And one other person I've heard there is Todd Reardon. If you'll remember, Jeff, in one of their previous coaching searches, Todd Reardon was a finalist. And when I heard that while I was traveling on uh, the other day, it made sense to me because I think Travis Green got a serious look from them a few years ago too. So what that kind of says to me is that Craig Conroy is going through some of their previous history of coaching interviews and saying, Hmm. well, we liked that guy back then. Let's relook at it here. So for the guys who I think are in the mix, I admit I could be wrong, but this is my educated guess is Huska, Love, Green, and Reardon. And if there's anyone else, I don't know. But I heard Reardon was, was I, I heard they spoke to Reardon recently. So I just think that that's, that's kind of the potential group they could be picking from. Although I freely admit there could be people there I'm not seeing. You know whose career he really helped get back on track? Cody CC. In Pittsburgh. I thought you were going to say Chris Letang. Uh, No, Chris Letang's fine. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, Cody Cece. The Penguins have had, you know, Sergey Gonchar, who did, you know, wonders with that blue line as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was always told, like, hey, big up Todd Reardon when you get a chance, because he's done and he did a lot with a lot of those blue liners and most notably Cody Cece. So that doesn't surprise me that that the Calgary Flames are having a look at, at Todd Reardon. Okay, let's hit pause here on the uh, on the podcast. I uh, should mention as well, a little bit later on, you will hear interviews that Elliot and I did with uh, both head coaches in the Stanley Cup final. So that is Bruce Cassidy and Paul Maurice. Should mention as well, on Wednesday morning, probably by the time you're getting this podcast, um, the Matthew Kachuk and Alex Petrangelo interviews, which you've already heard here on the podcast, will be available on our YouTube channel. So that's on Sportsnet's YouTube channel. Check that out. Morning, fellas. It's uh, Daniela from Calgary. I just wanted to say I love your podcast and just really I listen because of the awesome playlist at the end of the show. Anyways, I just wanted to let you know that a middle-aged woman from Calgary actually listens to your podcast and I'm learning tons. Love it. Have a great day, guys.
listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Okay, a couple of more things before we get to, uh, oh yeah, the Stanley Cup final. Yeah. Greg Cronin was hired by the Anaheim Ducks uh, as head coach. Yes. I had a chance to talk to him on my radio show, and before we get to a clip or two Can you tell he's from the Boston area? Holy smokes, can you ever? (laughs) You really can. And, you know, he's been been behind a bench since the late 80s. Mm You know, he's seen a lot of players come and go, like I think of like a player like Sedano Chara, for example, who, you know, he was there as an assistant with the Islanders. He saw the young, raw, you know, gangly Zdeno Chara and then watched him through his career blossom into a into a future Hall of Famer. This guy's seen a lot. This guy uh, has uh, has coached some really interesting teams, some really interesting players, and now he's tasked with shepherding a really young Anaheim Ducks team as they transition to the next phase of whatever this squad is going to turn into. And whatever it is, is going to feature Zegras and is going to feature Mason McTavish, netminder Lucas Dostal, defenseman Jamie Drysdale, and about a million other young defensemen that they have as well. Every single CHL league, the defenseman of the year was an Anaheim Ducks prospect. Well done, Anaheim scouting departments. And whomever the Anaheim Ducks draft second overall in this year's NHL draft. This is a tall order, and uh, we wondered who was going to get it. Turns out it's Greg Cronin. So I'll tell you a funny story before we play uh, one of your clips. He's uh, so way back at the beginning, you know, we kind of mentioned that he might be a guy who was on their radar. I wasn't sure he would get it, but I, I knew they'd look at him. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is, you know, don't forget that in the Anaheim organization, they kind of listen to Paul Korea, and Paul Korea is really tight with Joe Sackick. Joe Sackick, of course, runs the Avalanche. And who was their American Hockey League coach, Cronin? I wish I would have thought of that earlier because I would have leaned into it even more. Uh, But a friend of mine heard us talking about Cronin, and he was curious. So he saw the picture of Verbeek and Cronin at the press conference, and he, he decided to listen to their conference. And he goes, Elliot, I'll be honest with you. I saw the picture of the two of them. I was like, who are these two cavemen and how can they really be about hockey in the 21st century? And so he said he was blown away by some of the stuff Cronin talking about, because even though Cronin looks like an absolute killer and quite frankly, sounds like one too. And he is very hard nosed. Like don't mistake that for a second, but the way he talked about things like cross-ice seam passes and stuff like oh, that. yeah, he's smart, man. He was expecting to, this guy to be like a barbarian of hockey. Like, we're going <laughs> to kill people. There's going to be blood all over the ice. And he said he was just pleasantly surprised by some of the new way that Cronin talked about it. Now, you know, I'll say this about um, Cronin. Like, I, I had more than one person say to me, they're really curious to see how Cronin and Zegras are going to get along because they he will push Zegras. 
he will test him and he will push him and he will probably handle Zegris in a way that he's never been handled. But if Zegris is receptive to it, mm-hmm. he said that this could be a guy who pushes him into the next level. It's going to be a long time since Zegris has been pushed like this guy will push him and he will speak to him very bluntly. He said it's going to be interesting. It has he said it has a real chance to work, but it's going to be different for both mm. of these guys cuz Zegris pushes back too. Like he's a blunt blunt kid. For sure. So, you know, I think that's what a lot of people are going to watch is just how do they form their relationship and how do they make it mutually beneficial for them and the team. Let me play something here from the radio show from earlier on on Tuesday. This is, you talk about the, the Paul Correa-Joe Sackett connection. I asked him, I said, how do we get from Cronin to Verbeek? There is one very specific person. Let's hear. That's a great question, Jeff. And I, I, if you were to ask me this a year ago, I was just getting ready to do an interview with the Boston Bruins. And that's me, like, and, I, and I've asked that same question you asked me probably a hundred times because I've been doing this so long and I see people that get jobs and I try and connect the dots and I don't really know where the dots yeah. started or where they connect. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't know Pat, I didn't know him at all. Um, I think ultimately what happens is, um, a guy that I work with was my direct boss in Colorado was Craig Billington and, uh, Craig actually retired a year ago played a long time in the league, had a lot of stops. He, one of his first stops is in New, New Jersey. Jersey with Pat. Yeah. New Jersey. So that's he, okay that's, Pat, what, okay, that's yeah. what it is. All right. Yeah. So Pat and Craig knew each other and, but you know, with respect for the process, there was no, you know, Dallas has a job and there was no announcement. So it was actually, Craig had told me, I, I think if, if there's a change in Anaheim, you and Pat would mesh really well, even though he's a Western Ontario Fama, and I'm a Boston guy. And it's a strange dynamic, but <laughs> he predicted it and, it, and it and it really meshed well. You know what? Like, Craig Billington, that makes sense, too. You know what? Absolutely. Jeff, you're making sense today. I'm not used to that. <laughs> By the way, one other thing about Anaheim, one of the things I heard at the Stanley Cup final, somebody mentioned to me they heard it at the Combine, is apparently, remember a couple of years ago when Dodonov was supposed to be traded from Vegas? Oh, to, what, a, what a glorious few hours that was. That turned into yes. a few days. <laughs> so he was supposed to go from Vegas to Anaheim, and then he showed that, you know, the Ducks were on his no trade, and, and the trade got overturned. Well, apparently the Ducks have asked the league for a compensatory draft pick for that. And I think it's under consideration. Like, I don't know where that pick's going to be. Apparently, I can't remember if they were supposed to receive a first or second round pick. I've been traveling all day. But apparently the docs said that because the mistake wasn't on their end, they should get some sort of compensatory pick. And again, I don't know what they've argued for. I don't know where it would go, what the league is thinking about here, but I have heard the league is at least considering the idea. So we'll see where that goes. Okay, that's something we'll uh, we'll stand by for. Meanwhile, it was a couple of podcasts ago that we wondered if Lou Lamarillo of the New York Islanders was going to hold any type of press conference or make himself <laughs> available to media slash fans. 
And Lou relented on Tuesday, June the 6th. He had the New York Islanders season ender. To start off, um, can you sort of explain why, you know, this is happening today instead of, you know, on breakup day? Well, I, I didn't think it was necessary. Uh, and I had a lot of uh, questions that I wanted to get answered uh, and wanted to get right at it. And quite frankly, my focus wasn't on answering questions. It was more asking a lot of questions and getting answers to questions. I, I guess, you know. Not a whole lot here, uh, except for one issue, and I'll get there in a second. Um, Lamarillo mentioned he'd like to keep Mayfield and Engvall and Varlamov and uh, Parise, uh, who I believe is, is talking to his family uh, about that decision. Um, and it sounds like it, the ball is kind of in his court in, in that one. Mm -hmm. uh, he said he's coming back. He said Lane Lambert is coming back. And that's where he started to pull up short. So fill in the blank there for yourself. And he was also asked about Josh Bailey. And the quote was, Never. In Josh's case, uh, it, it looks like, you know, maybe it's near the end for here uh, in our situation. Uh, Josh and I have, I think, a a man-to-man -man relationship as far as honesty, and we will work with him, whatever, to help him. Uh, but my priority is doing what's best for the team. We've talked about Josh Bailey. You've talked about Josh Bailey a couple of places in a couple of different times. One year, $5 million contract. Uh, that's what's remaining on his deal. Your thoughts on the Islanders and a decision with Josh Bailey? I think this is what we all expected. He wasn't playing at the end of the year. And, you know, I, I really liked one thing in particular that Lamorello said. He said, I have a lot of time for Bailey, basically, but I have to do what's best for the team. And that's always the way he's done it. What it says to me is he's going to try to get Josh Bailey into a position that he wants to go. Mm -hmm. He's going to say, you know, where do you want to go? And he'll try to get him there. He may not be able to do it, but he will try. Ultimately, I think we all know that this is the best thing for both the player to get a fresh start and the Islanders. Now, while I was in my Uber to the hotel tonight, yes. I got a very interesting text message about Lamorello's media conference today. Okay. At one point, he talks about their five centers. And in alphabetical order, those centers are Barzell, Sezikis, Horvat. Nelson and Pajot. And then you go up front. I think that uh, we're fortunate to have the five center icemen we have. Uh, when I say pure center icemen, certainly uh, Matt Barzell was moved over to right wing, which I do agree and did agree with that, that movement. Um, but we have the option to, if something should come about, to make us better in a different situation. Uh, you know, we could change the construction of uh, our offensive lines. I got an interesting call from someone who said there is no way that Lamorello drops that fact without a reason. Like everything Lou Lamorello does is calculated. Yes. So what he's thinking is one of two things is happening here. He's either just saying, okay, you know, we'll be able to be flexible with our forwards. Or he's saying, I have an extra center. And he's kind of wondering if it's B. 
I choose to believe that he's saying I have an extra center and I would like some cap <laughs> relief right now because I have yes. all these players I would like to sign. Can someone help me without me begging to someone to help me here? I'm just pointing out I have five centers. Have I mentioned that you win Stanley Cups down the middle and I've got five of them? I kind of wonder, like, he does nothing without a reason. So that one was definitely out there. The same person said to me, he thinks they're looking for a right D and another scoring forward or a forward who can score. Mm-hmm. That's just something I wanted to throw in because, you know, we talk about the whole Debrinket thing being the Riddler. I don't know what's the Riddler times a million that's the islanders so like you just have to figure out the smoke signals i guess difference is like in any riddler uh, in any version of batman the riddler talks a lot a lot a lot that's the opposite of the islanders that's true that's the opposite of this team the silent riddler <laughs> the silent riddler yeah we'll go with that you know it seemed as if also elliot after we released any podcast or made any tweet, every now and then we'd get a, just tell us Caulfield's deal is done or tell us the Cole Caulfield contract details. Mm-hmm. Well, now we can. Um, Cole Caulfield signs with the Montreal Canadiens. It is an eight-year deal, max term, $62.8 million. That means the AAV is $7.85 million. Your thoughts on the deal between two agents, one current and one previous, Pat Brisson and Kent Hughes. Well, I never thought this one was going to be a problem. I, I, I really believed it was always going to get done, and I really believed the Canadians were going to get term as they wanted. Obviously, they wanted to keep Suzuki as their top salaried person, and they, they did it with uh, with Caulfield here. But I just don't know how much longer that's going to be possible. I'm not, you know, people are saying, oh, Suzuki's the ceiling, Suzuki's the ceiling. Well, he is now. But as the cap goes up and, you know, one of their other prospects maybe hits it big or they really want to sign a big-time free agent, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. So, but they did it here. And, you know, the one thing I think everybody has to remember is it's kind of like uh, Jason Robertson a little bit. A lot of players, when they sign these extensions, they're four years away from unrestricted free agency. If you sign right after your ELC, mm-hmm. Caulfield wasn't. He was five. And, you know, it's it's pretty clear to me that in exchange for the term, he just got more of the money up front. And these are the years when the escrow and the CBA is maxed out at 6%. And so I think, you know what, first of all, nobody's complaining here. Caulfield's going to be making a lot of money. <laughs> oh, yeah. But secondly, like what he gets in the trade-off for taking an eight-year deal at a, at a number slightly less than Suzuki is, he gets a lot of the money up front and he gets it at a time where he knows the escrow is going to be very low. Like to me, this is a win-win, win-win-win. The kid's going to be happy. The player's going to be happy. The team's going to be happy. I always say like if the player's happy with their contract, that's the only thing that matters. And this kid's got nothing to be upset about that's for and sure Montreal Canadiens fans are now hoping they have their version of Bergeron and Pasternak with uh, Suzuki and, and Caulfield and listen these two look uh, these two are, really are, good. Are, are dynamite young players so good deal for the Habs good deal for the kid we'll be back to talk about game two and preview game three after this Last week in Vegas at Stanley Cup Media Day, David Amber sat down with Vegas Golden Knights defenseman Zach Whitecloud, 
for an extremely wide-ranging interview. Here's a snippet from that interview. You mentioned your community, Zach, and this could be a historic moment, right? You could be the first Stanley Cup winner ever from the Sioux Valley, Dakota Nation. What does that mean to you? There's a lot of words to describe that. I think that could be a long conversation too. They, uh, they've always been supportive of me. They've been encouraging. Um, they've given me resources that I, I was able to use growing up playing the game to, to take the burden off my parents. Um, I take a lot of pride in being a role model for, for our people and, and, and showing that, you know, with hard work, dedication, and, and having the people that love you and support you uh, be by your side through this whole journey. I think um, I just want to be a, a representation of, of hard work and just when you love something, go after it. And and, uh, and that, you know, even for a small town kid from, from Manitoba that was <laughs> never particularly good at hockey, um, you know, find a way and, 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 and uh, uh, do something you love. If you want to listen to and see the entire piece, visit our Sportsnet YouTube channel. a smoky break for our thought line partner montana's barbecue and bar with meats prepared and smoked in-house it's no wonder why they're canada's home for barbecue check them out and as elliot always says try the ribs yes their ribs are smoked in-house every day until they fall off the bone and don't forget montana's has all you can eat ribs every wednesday head on down to montana's barbecue and bar and take the all you can eat rib challenge every wednesday Smoking good barbecue only at Montana's. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Celebrate the final horn for seemingly minutes. Face off one by Watt. The Golden Knights kill the clock. And Stanley Cup final game two is over. 7-2. The Knights smack down the Florida Panthers. The Flamingos come onto the ice. And the Panthers stayed off, trailing the series 2-0. So we're real deep into the podcast here, Elliot. We haven't yet talked about the Vegas Golden Knights and the Florida Panthers. This uh, should always be the lead story. The game is always the most important, but there's just a lot of news to cover. Mm -hmm. But man, does Vegas look good right now. They look at every single position in every area of the ice, you know, in the, in the Bruce Cassidy interview. And when we ask, you know, you know, where will the games be won here? Where will the series be won? And he talks about the front of the net. Vegas looks like they're beating Florida, not just in the front of the net, but in the corners, along the boards, in the neutral zone. Uh, I don't know, on the bench, in the hallway, uh, in the parking lot, walking to the dressing room, ordering a coffee. This is this is impressive by Vegas here, Elliot. Your thoughts on this one so far? Well, when you lose in the coffee line, you're in real <laughs> big trouble. That's what it seems like, Elliot. You know, it, it, it's totally true. They've absolutely swarmed them. They've absolutely dominated them. There's been teams that have, have had long layoffs before, but I talked about before the series about the 07 Senators, and that's the one I really remember. Yeah. They had 9, 10 days off. And look, Anaheim was winning that Stanley Cup anyway. They were not going to, Ottawa was not going to beat them. But the Senators just felt that like their legs were like molasses for two or three games, and it, they just couldn't get into the series. And uh, they always felt that, you know, even if they lost, they never were able to put their best effort in there because 
they just didn't get going enough. And, you know, I, I think to some degree that's what's happened to Florida. But when you when you look like that and you have another team that's firing and just beating you in every way, like you said, you're really in trouble. And And I think the thing that's happened here is you talked about in front of the net where Florida, I think, is really getting hammered is in front of their own net. They cannot control Vegas there. Bobrovsky's getting screened on every goal. You know, sometimes it's Vegas guys. Look at that the great screen from Stone on the first goal of game two. Sometimes it's from their own guys who are getting in Bobrovsky's way just because they're trying to battle. And now, you know, with Gudis out and we'll see where this is, that's going to make it even harder on them to cover the front of their net. So I just think if, if Florida doesn't start letting Bobrovsky see better, they've got no chance of getting back into the series. None at all. You know, g- game two was a combination of uh, skill and toughness by Vegas. Like Vegas opened up that game by trying to hit anything that moved mm-hmm. in a Panthers jersey. It was like, this is our ice. This is our building. And we are going to now dominate you physically. And whether it was, well, first of all, it's a good thing that you weren't around for the radio show on Tuesday because you would I would have made you sick with the Ivan Barbashev appreciation tour because whether it was the hit on Gudis. You and Rudy. <laughs> Kelly's the best man. Kelly knows. Kelly knows who the good players are. Kelly, Kelly's it's like It's two. like you guys are having an election for the presidency <laughs> of his fan club and you're trying to out slobber over him <laughs> over the other guy actually you know one thing about barbashev i had a here's something that i think is really interesting about him What's that i had a person who said to me last night because bedard was at the stanley cup final with the other top picks in in fantilly and carlson and, and will smith someone said to me if they were chicago they would go after barbashev to play with bedard because they said that Bedard is going to need a player like that. Hmm. And he said, look, in a lot of normal years, Chicago wouldn't do that. But he said, it's different now. You're going to have a franchise player, and you owe it to him to protect him. And if they were the Blackhawks, Barbashev is the guy they would go after. I don't disagree. I think that he needs, uh, considering what he means to the the franchise, I think he need there needs to be a security blanket there. I, I don't disagree. And listen, Barbashev uh, was outstanding in game two, but a lot of players were. I mean, Marcia So, again, outstanding. The blue line continues to be an enormous story mm-hmm. uh, for the Vegas Golden Knights. And and one thing I want to mention about Aiden Hill, because I suspect you're going to want to have a thought or two on, on Aiden Hill. I love the story of the unsung scout who who you know who finds a player and and brings him to the organization. I was having a conversation with someone recently who said, "You know who you guys should really talk about on your podcast?" And I said, "Who's that?" And he said, "Craig Cunningham." Hmm. Now we all know the Craig Cunningham story uh, itself is him and, and how his career ended. And he did overlap in the Arizona organization with Aiden Hill very briefly, I believe, in in, in Tucson. But he's a pro scout for the Vegas Golden Knights, and this is his territory. You know, he scouts a lot of Arizona games, San Jose Sharks games, so he knows Aiden Hill really well. And as we're throwing out compliments for, and this is to take nothing away from Kelly McCrimmon, who's done some excellent work, and previous to him, George McPhee, there are also people working under the general manager here who do a lot of heavy lifting. 
And this person said to me, you guys should mention Craig Cunningham because uh, he's the guy that brought Aiden Hill to this Vegas Golden Knights organization. And man, Elliot, is Aiden Hill doing a job right now for Vegas? Yes, I completely agree with you. I, I mean, who's going to argue? I mean, he might win the Conn Smythe. I was going to lead you. Like, how many different candidates do we have now? Like, I think there's five. Uh, Eichel. Yep. One. Marcheseau. Two. Stone. Three. Hill. Four. Petrangelo. Yeah, those are my five, too. That's what I look at. And I'll tell you what, still tops for me, Jack Eichel. I'm not going to argue with you. I, I think you could go in any direction here, but I think there's there's five players. Before we get to Eichel, I was looking at Vegas's cap setup. They've got Eichel 10. Mm-hmm. He's their highest paid guy, a contract they traded for. They've got Stone 9-5. Then they have Petrangelo 8-8. And then they have five guys in the 5 million range. Carlson's 5-9. Martinez is 5-2-5. Theodore is 5-2, and they've got Marcia So and Smith at 5 million. Mm-hmm. Now the cap's gonna go up not this year, but next year. But I'm wondering if that's kind of the way you gotta build your team. And that's also a no tax state. And that's a big advantage, but at a certain point, I mean, you really have a bargain with your netminders. Yes. There always has to be the one area where you're getting significant value in order to make a cap structure the likes of which you just described work. And the value that they're getting is from their goalies. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter which position it is. When you are under value and you're up, you get paid. Like it's mm-hmm. it's simple here. You're Jerry Johansson. You're looking at Aiden Hill, and you're you're licking your chops. You're like, okay, here we go. We're we're doing a job. We might win the Conn Smythe Trophy, and this team might win the Stanley Cup. So. I don't disagree with you. I like the way this team is structured. I like the players. There doesn't the nice thing about Vegas as well too is there doesn't seem to be a skill redundancy. Like there doesn't seem to be like two or three players who all do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like they have a lot of players that do a whole lot of different things. Like I know on the blue line there's some overlap, but but up front like these are really different players like Jack Eichel is nothing like Mark Stone who's nothing like Jonathan Marcheseau who's nothing like Chandler Stevenson who's nothing like Keegan Colasar who's nothing like uh Riley Smith who's nothing like Brett Howden or Ivan Barbashev I just like how every single player is so distinct and different than everybody else up front let me ask you about the hits well, Kachuk just came flying off the bench and Eichel in a vulnerable spot trying to make the play and just absolutely laid into him. And no surprise at this reaction afterwards. Eichel went right back to the bench because he lost his helmet. Okay, so our set where David and I stand is right above the Florida bench in Vegas. And Kachuk saw that whole play unfolding. He knew exactly what was going on. He's got a high hockey IQ. He saw the play coming. I think it was Jen who pointed out on TV that Eichel couldn't see him behind Marcia so for a while. He saw the way that was going. And I think in a whatever that game was at the time, 5-1, whatever it was. 4 nothing. 4 nothing. you said, Jeff? Yep, 4 nothing. Like he knew he could make a big momentum play. I think he pulled up. I saw Eichel with the puck. I saw where Kachuk was. I was like, he's going to kill him. I absolutely saw it coming. 
And I still think Kachuk pulled up. I don't think he hit him with as much force hmm. as he could have. Now, initially, I thought Eichel ducked, but as we said, as he said later, he toe picked. And I thought Kevin made a great point on TV that if Eichel falls backward, it's not as bad. But he fell forward and he got crunched. Like I'm like everybody else. I thought Eichel's season was over not only that and our directors caught john sapala caught george mcphee with that great shot of him saying yeah. f me yeah but i thought not only were we talking about eichel being done for this year but i was thinking when's he going to be back christmas like i couldn't believe it when he was back for the third period and he said he was winded after the game when i asked him about it but i still don't think Kachuk hit him as hard as he could have because I was watching that whole play develop and I could see it. Now, I'll say this too, Jeff. The loudest hit I've ever heard was Dustin Bufflin on Mark Stone. Oh, man. This was not that. Well, thankfully, in both yes. those situations, the players that got hit got back up. And I still don't know how Stone got up from that Bufflin hit. Yep. And thankfully, Jack Eichel came out for the third period. And by the way, made a great play setting up Jonathan Marcheseau. I think the Florida defense kind of forgot where Marshall was. On yeah, the it's play. like, how does that guy get wide open? Well, Jack's going to find him. Not only did he come back, but he came back with authority and made another absolutely brilliant play. Oh, I should mention it to you, too. I told him that people online were comparing it to Korea. Oh, yeah. In the 2003 <laughs> yes. final. And he was like, no, <laughs> not even close. And, and Dave Keon, yeah. Dave Keon Jr., who works for the NHL, he was helping do the media mm -hmm. uh, work in the Golden Knights dressing room, and, and he was there when I mentioned it to Eichel. He was like, no, not even close. But <laughs> even Eichel was like, no comparison. It was not the same. He laughed. He was good about that. I don't know. When you saw the hit, I'll be honest, and this may sound bad, but my first thought went to his neck and his spine. Yeah, I thought about the ADR surgery, and I thought, yep. you know, Dr. Prusmack, who we had here on the podcast, and when he came back i i thought wow like that is a again like i'm not a doctor so i don't know but my first thought was when i saw jack heichel come back i said what a victory lap for adr because i there are a lot of players we talked about this before a lot of players that had significant misgivings once they found out that teams were in control of medical authority over their bodies and i think a lot of players wondered about this surgery specifically and you know would it be able to withstand and sure it's been used in football before mma etc but i wonder how many players looked at that and said you know what more so than ever if that's an option to me i'm going to think really long and hard about taking that option like, i can't help but thinking that's a that's a victory lap for adr surgery yes i agree elliot one last thing i want to ask you about the closing seconds and Paul Maurice, Brandon Montour takes the face off. Mark Stahl, Aaron Ekblad, Josh Mahura, Gustav Forsling out there with them. Now, Brent Sutter did this once upon a time with the Calgary Flames back in 2010. 
But what did you think of five defensemen out there for the draw? I have a theory. I'm curious if you do. Well, Montour was really hacking at whoever the Vegas center was. So I remember, you remember who took the face off the night of the brawl, Calgary, uh, Vancouver on Hockey Day in Canada? Bieksa, Kevin That's did. right. Yeah. Kellen Lane, by the way, set the record for quickest fight into his career. I think it was like two seconds <laughs> when the fight started. So here's my theory. And again, this is just speculating based on how we know Paul Maurice. My theory is this is Paul Maurice not so subtly saying to the officials, you've thrown out all my forwards. This is all I have. This is all I have. I got to throw out all my defensemen because you've kicked all my forwards out of the game. Yes, I think you're probably right because he's the kind of person who would do that. I'll also say this about uh, about Vegas. The, everything about that Florida's done that's driven crazy their opponents, it's not working with these guys. No. You know, they're going to have to find another way to do this because it worked at times against Boston. It worked at times against Toronto. It, it, it didn't happen so much against Carolina, but they won the series. Vegas knows this identity of the Panthers, and they are not letting it happen like i didn't like the first kachuk misconduct i understood the second one i did not like that at all the first I... but you know vegas sent a message that the way you've pushed around other teams and driven them to distraction it's not going to happen to us oh i know what else i wanted to mention to you as we wrap this part up before the interviews what's up so i was asking you know when it was two nothing like if there's a parade here is it going to be up and down the strip and I was told that when the Aces won the WNBA title, they set up like a stage, but it didn't move. It was like a set stage on the strip. But I was thinking, you know, you got to take the Stanley Cup up and down the strip. Yeah. And what, what someone told me was that Vegas has absolutely refused on any level to discuss the possibility of a parade. Like the Knights organization. Yes. Not even talking about it until it's over. Apparently, they've said, we're not talking about it. So this is all going to be thrown together at the last possible minute. Well, you know what? I, 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 don't, I don't have a problem with this. Like, I think it's just superstition. Like, I, I completely understand. And, you know, this is not something I want to bother the Knights with. But it makes me wonder, like, if you remember in 2018, they picked up the trophy after they won the conference and they lost the Stanley Cup final. Yeah. So this time they didn't touch it. Like, I just wonder if Ugh. there was a conversation back then and they're like, we're not oh, doing this. No, I get it. Uh, I get it. I don't. I act, in this case, with the Stanley Cup, I would be the same way. I would be like, do not bother me with this. Okay, let's get to the interviews. Now, we should preface this by saying these interviews were recorded last Friday at T-Mobile Arena in Vegas. So... I don't think they sound dated. They shouldn't. It was pretty generic, but nonetheless, uh, you'll hear from Paul Maurice, head coach of the Florida Panthers. But first, here's Bruce Cassidy, head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights. Bruce, back in the Stanley Cup final, is this the best team you've ever coached? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, I think it is, top to bottom. Uh, I think there's been some... Years in Boston, we might have had a, a more dominant line or maybe a deep pair, but at the end of the day, top to bottom, and we'll find out this next series, right? <laughs> There's one thing I remember you saying 
I can't remember if it was the morning of Game 7 in 2019, but I think it was. You said, I just want my name on that damn cup. I've always remembered that. Yes, and that's getting closer, right? And that's my goal. I want my name in the damn cup. It's true. They, there was a lot of questions about this and that, right? Game seven and pressure, not pressure, enjoying the moment. And I, I think that's the only thing I was focused on. And I think the players are, would probably say the same. Some of them had it in our room, which I think will help us. Mm-hmm. Others want it that have been there like me that, you know, especially here in Vegas. So that's, uh, that's what's in front of us. Is it possible because I know how hard you work and how many hours you put in and how you don't want the foot off the pedal. Has it been possible at all through this journey to take a step back and enjoy yourself through all of it? Or is that an, an impossible? No, no, it's a good point. And, and I have, that's maybe one of the differences from last time, which days to be businesslike and which days to allow yourself to dream a little bit, so to speak. We, we talked about that with our group actually the night before the Dallas game, a little bit about, what's at stake and and it's okay to think about that and you know think about maybe your legacy in hockey sometimes you know these things can define you as a hockey player never as a person but as a hockey player and the next day you drill down on the details so I think that's how we've tried to balance the big picture and the day of a game okay here's the details that'll help us you know get to where we want to go and whether that was Right or wrong, we've kind of looked at it, that approach this year. And I think in my first go around, I was, it was all still new to me, like the, the playoff runs, the media demands, the different times for practice. You know, they're changing your practice. To, all these things change all of a sudden, so your routine gets thrown off a little bit and how to adjust to some of those things. What's a Bruce Cassidy day off look like? Uh, I'm usually driving my kids somewhere. They both like to golf now, so here in Vegas, that's a good oh, thing. Oh, very good. <laughs> it's typically during in the winter, they both play hockey, son mm-hmm. and daughter. So that's going to a rink here where the Henderson Silver Knights play. So mm-hmm. I'm out there a lot, baseball practice. Mm-hmm. I like to go to my kids' activities because it takes me out of my activities in my head, like, you know, thinking about hockey. So it's kind of just really you know, takes you away and just be around kids. It's kind of loosens the mood quite a bit have either of your children or any of your children surpassed you as a golfer yet no no i uh cole is a a good player my daughter's just getting into it Mm -hmm. uh but he's got a ways to go that's (laughs) (laughs) golf is my passion away from and like in the summer right how dare you suggest one of my kids could be better (laughs) than me not happening not not Uh, ready to snatch the pebble no it seems like guys either fish or play golf Mm -hmm. because of our our off season being in the summer and i chose golf jack eichel has played so well for you He's just flat out spectacular. Game one, though, of the playoffs, uh, by his admission, anyone who's followed Jack Eichel, not a Jack Eichel game. Did you talk to him after that game? Was there was there any even any need to talk to Eichel after game one? I, if I did, it was very basic. There's no like big message if yeah. you know, that's kind of where you're going. I'd, we weren't very good as a team. You know, and he was just part of that product. You know, we sort of say hey, we got to. Okay, it's time now. And then the next game, we, we got to our game, and Jack was a big reason for that. But remember, Mark Stone just came back, and we did not know if he'd play game one at all, game two, the next series. So I think there was a little bit of that, almost like, oh, well, Stoney's back in the lineup, you know, and meanwhile, he hasn't played in three months. Like, so we sort of say, hey, we got to collectively get to our own individual levels. And I think that certainly happened with Jack right away. And, and in fairness to him, it's his first playoff game ever. There's going to be a little bit of probably anxiety, if nothing else. Like, you know, what's this all about? One of the things I, I really wanted to ask you about is you give some of the most detailed 
breakdowns and answers and interviews. I remember in 2019, you pulled your goalie in the Stanley Cup final with five seconds left in the period. And you did a whole breakdown on, we tried this. I love it. I know Ron in particular has remarked a lot about how detailed you are. A lot of coaches wouldn't be like that. I love that you do it. Why do you do it, I guess? Well, I like to talk hockey for one. And I don't believe there's a lot of secrets. I think there's guys that don't want to, it's like they know something you don't. I just don't feel like I'm that guy. I think everything I say is it's probably they're watching film and know some of this stuff. You know, and if not, well, shame on me. But I just feel like that's, I just feel there's so many good coaches in this league that a lot of this stuff is already out there. If you choose to talk about it or not, I don't know if I'm explaining myself you very are. well. But uh, so I don't think it's any big secret what I'm what I'm revealing now. You know, sometimes I've been told, well, you know, you can, you know, you don't have to talk so much, you know, I'm like, well, I can't help it. I asked a question and I have a tough time. I'm not very good at stick handling around. I'm just not a politician yet in that regard. So I'd rather just answer the damn question and talk hockey. And I just, that's just what I've always done. Don't change. Well, I was going to say, we like it better that way. I think a lot of people like it better that way. Where do you think the Stanley Cup, which zone do you think the Stanley Cup final will be won in? Well, it's interesting because I would say in the slot battle. So you've got the slot battle in each zone, depending where the puck is. If that, you know, I think the team that controls a neutral zone, it's is always going to have an edge because yep. you're, you know, you're forechecking, you're getting to your game. I think both teams forecheck well, but you know, if we get away from that, I think the slot battle will determine the Stanley Cup. Can I ask you about Boston? Sure. We all have go through it. I've been fired before. Like there were some tough things said about you or about the situation there. Did it bother you? Do you? Does any of you feel like this is revenge? Well, I don't feel it's revenge, and some of it did bother me. You know, I got hired by Golden Knights to do a job quickly, and and they've been nothing but fantastic. So for me, it's more about you know getting your your head where your feet are and getting going back to work. Because as you said, you know you're on the clock the day you're hired, so you know that it's coming eventually. I just there was some of the narrative I didn't appreciate or, or feel was accurate. I just sometimes feel like hey. You didn't win enough. We're going to do voice, whatever is usually sufficient and move on. But it's a sports market and, and media and talk radio. So there's going to be always be conversations there. So eventually it kind of goes away and you just do your job. Now, I happen to have a house in Cape Cod in the summer. Kids from New England. So going back is something we'd like to always do because there are roots there. So that'll be interesting to see how that goes. But at the end of the day, uh, everyone is good about it there. Got great neighbors, great people there that I've met. Hopefully they treat you as a person more than a Bruin, right? Because, <laughs> you know, like I, I've always said, I'll always have, have, Bruins will always be part of me. It was my favorite team growing up. But now with the Golden Knights success, to get to the second part of it, it, you know, it feels good to be able to kind of prove yourself in a different market now and and sort of put that behind you and, and try to remember it as a great experience because it was. I really cut my teeth in coaching there mm-hmm. um, and, and probably established myself as a legitimate coach and it happened in Boston. Let me, let me try another word um, because I kind of feel that there's, there, there is a symmetry between yourself and Jack Eichel because when Eichel was moved from Buffalo to Vegas and even before when he was still in Buffalo, a lot of things that were said about Jack Eichel and he heard them and internalized them and has used it for fuel as you have as well. Maybe not revenge, but do you feel you're vindicated just by getting to the Stanley Cup final? Maybe there's a little bit of that. That uh, Although I had confidence in my ability to coach, I thought I did a good job in Boston. As I said, if, if I, I looked at it more as, you know, like 
they need a, a new voice, that's fine. And, and, and Pete DeBoer was a very good coach and I'm t- taking over from a guy that did a good job too. So that's kind of the circle of life and coaching, I think. But with Jack, when I met with him, it's, it's funny, I met with him in July. I talked about that. I think we're tied together here, Jack. You know, we're, we're hmm. coming in kind of in very similar situations. Yeah. So what are we going to, what can we do together to move this forward a little bit? What do you need from me? Here's what I'm expecting. Here's what, these will be the asks and we'll sort through it as I get to know you. What do you need from me? Let's make sure we we come together on these things because I think we're going to be tied together with success or failure of the Vegas Golden Knights. So it's ironic that you'd mention that, but I I do believe that. That's awesome. That's an awesome answer. Good luck, Bruce. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that's Bruce Cassidy, head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, his team up 2 nothing right now over the Florida Panthers. Panthers bench boss is next. Here's Paul Maurice on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Paul, before we get to this series and the Florida Panthers, I want you to think back to all the times you've watched the Stanley Cup final and watched someone hoist the Stanley Cup. Are there one or two that jump to mind right away? all of the Detroit Red Wings in 2002, because I think I was still on the ice when that happened. Uh, Rod Brindamore. Mm. More for an understanding of what Roddy was willing to do to be a player of the hours. But in truth, it's because Jim Rutherford was up in the press box and I knew what it meant to him. So that one, that one's impactful for me. I've watched uh, all of the Stanley Cup champion playoff games every year. So if we miss the playoffs, you get beat in the first round. I won't watch another game. It's too emotional, right? I didn't get invited to a party. So uh, I'll wait till the summer, and then I'll, I'll go back and I'll watch all those games. But I did watch, uh, I did watch Jimmy Stanley Cup. I was just happy for him. 21 years ago was your first game behind the bench in a Stanley Cup final. What do you remember about it, and what's going to be different Saturday? I remember walking out to the bench and Brian Englund did an interview and I couldn't stop smiling. And I, I think he actually said, like, is there something you know that we don't? And I'm going like, it's the Stanley Cup final, man. Like being so, oh my God, so good. Ronnie Francis scored in overtime and that building went dead quiet. I mean, because it couldn't happen. Right? The, the team was so good. Ten Hall of Famers, I think, on it and Scotty Bowman. So I remember that because I didn't know that I would expect that. There was actually a complete absence of tension because it was such an awesome thing right like you so caught up in i've had a handful of moments like that sorry for taking this for a walk but like my fourth game in the nhl was in the forum in montreal and i'm standing behind the bench you remember when the cameras were to be on the platform like five rows up so when they do the national anthem my dad was born in montreal we watched all the hab games growing up well they do that you you had a picture of all the canadian players standing on the blue line it wasn't that far off me standing behind the bench. I was like a five-year-old kid. I'm standing behind the bench in the forum in Montreal. So I've had a handful of those, and I had that. National anthems are always awesome. I enjoy them, you know, standing behind the bench when they go. And, and I remember taking that in thinking, like, this just cannot possibly get any better than it is. And then we lost in triple overtime in game three, and reality set in. <laughs> We've had a lot of fun on this podcast over the past few weeks trying to compare your Florida Panthers to the 2012 Los Angeles Kings. Well, one of us has had a lot of fun with that. Brandon Montour is Drew Doughty and Carter Verhage is Justin Williams with the clutch goal scoring and Barkov playing the role of Kopitar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's been fun. 
but you've been around hockey a long time. Are there any players on your team or does this team in general remind you of any other teams? Like other elements of your Panthers that remind you of something else? No. And I'm sure there are if I had given it deep thought, but that's what's unique about this. So I got off the phone with each player in the summertime. I talked to him. We just did one word about hockey, just an introduction talked. I got off the phone. And, and Jamie Compon, by the way, is the one connection between the 2012 mm, and our team. He was assistant coach for both of them. Nice. And did talk about that at some point in January when we had to close by eight points. You can win the Stanley Cup as the eighth seed. Hmm. You, but your game has to be dialed in and right. Very similar, right? They made the playoffs, I think, in the last game or two of the year as well. They were an eight seed. Very, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... What's special about these guys is how darn unique they are. They are in a good mood all the time, even when you're hard on them, but not not in a bad way. They are positive. They are upbeat. They are laughing all the time. They are funny as hell. And that's okay. And I learned that from them. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to enjoy the moment because they work hard enough. They work so hard that even a bad result is not a problem. Work your butt off and have fun. Right? Those are the two rules. But the work your butt off hard is really hard to get to. So I'm not just saying you got to compete at a hard level mm-hmm. that in the third period of a game, when you're working your and there's all this tension and somebody says something funny, you can laugh. Because there's nothing else for you to do basically on the ice. You're going as hard as you can. And that was funny. So I've had a heck of a time with that. Well, Kachuk kind of talked about that a little bit. Like this has been the spring of Kachuk on the ice and off it. Right. And he talked about how the two of you guys learned to trust where he could get to another level. Like he was a good player, but now he's an even better player. Right. So I'm wondering about maybe that phone call you had with him or how you developed that trust. How did you get Matthew Kachuk from here to there? I didn't, but I watched him. So we have a certain route that you're supposed to run on a breakout and on the bench, he, he doesn't run the route three times. So go down and tell him, I want you to run an inside route on that. Okay. Then I want watch the video. He was right. I was wrong. Now you run the route because the coach says run the route, but in the situation that prevented off, it was the wrong route and he ran the right one. And that's when I learned, you know, you can learn more, ask him questions and learn from him more than I'm going to teach him. I do believe that Jamie Compon has had a major impact on him. Jamie does a lot of individual video, defensively small things. They're not trying to change his game. Small things that make him a little bit better. And after that, it's no impact. I mean, I've sat in awe of this young man, and it's not, you made sure that oh, it's not on the ice. Yeah, it's on the ice. He's unbelievable hands. Mm-hmm. Scores these huge goals. I mean, I didn't like him in Winnipeg, right? Like he just kept he kept doing that to us, right? He'd drive you nuts all game. It'd be a tight game, and then two minutes left, he'd score. It had to be him, right? Why did it have to be that guy? And then you get around him, you should see him move around the room. Truly, first week he was in town, he took all the trainers out for dinner. Okay, that's smart, right? He does it once. Except that's how he treats it. He's polite to the bus driver. He treats the flight attendants with respect. He has this great way of moving around there. Now, he's got some bark to him, too. Mm-hmm. And, and he'll encourage the defenseman to move the puck quicker and closer to his tape <laughs> at, at times. But he never separates himself. If you go look at statistically his season, in around January, he stopped taking penalties. I think in a 16-game set, he had four games with penalties. Two were two-minute penalties, so it was just a one-minute minor. And then two were like 17, and one was against Ottawa, and his brother started. To, so that's there. 
But he stopped taking penalties. He's not in the penalty box anymore, and he scored. Here's the other stat. He actually has a higher scoring rate. In his first few years, he'd have a higher scoring rate when he did take a penalty. So we needed to figure out a way to get him to keep the higher scoring rate but get rid of the penalties because he doesn't need them. Uh, He'll be a hard man, and if it gets on the ice and it gets going, he's probably in the middle of it. But away from it, he's not starting fires anymore. He's just playing the game. Hmm. We spoke with Bruce Cassidy, and one of the questions we asked was, where is this series going to be won? And we talked about the neutral zone. That's, that's an obvious conversation. But the one area that he pointed out was the slot. That's where this thing is going to be won, according to Bruce Cassidy. According to Paul Maurice, where is this series going to be won? Yeah, I don't want to tell you that because it's critical to us. So they have two or three things that they're very, very good at, a lead at. And eventually... He's right. The game always ends up to the net front, right? The percentage of goals that score from the slot is so much, and the inner slot are just, you're scoring at like 4% outside them. So for sure. So how does it get there, right? Each team is going to try to get the puck to the slot really in different ways. They're going to do everything they can to keep us from getting it the way we do, and we're going to do everything we can to get them, stop them. But theirs is different. So we've seen versions of their game in Toronto and Boston. Not so much... Carolina, who got a ton of slot shots on us. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But yeah, we will both try to take the strengths away. And as the underdog, we will pay particular attention to it. Is that where your team wants to be? The underdog? I think right now, yes. I think in order to not be, to be a powerful favorite, you have to have experience at it. So going from 16th to 1st, we're banging out 122 points in a year. You haven't earned the right to be a favorite on a good year. You have to have some depth to it. You've got to have lost for a little bit of while. You have to go through some battles, get to the conference final, get to the final, get you know in that. And then you, you step on the ice and say, yeah, we're older, we're more skilled, we're the favorite. And then you can carry that mantle. We're good being the underdog right now, and it's just true. So... Somebody asked me about me playing the underdog card against Boston. There's no card. <laughs> like there's 7,000 points ahead of us. And I'm, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to steer the, the messaging here. We're the underdog. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the place all teams have to start. Paul, thanks. Okay, Good guys. luck. Good to see you again. Yeah, see great you to see you. Right. Be well. All right. Thanks, guys. Good luck, sir. And that's Paul Maurice, head coach of the Florida Panthers. Don't forget game three. Thursday. We'll leave you with this, a six-piece collective from Sydney who have spent the past six years crafting their sound. Winston Surf Shirt makes old-school music with a modern feel, mixing West Coast hip-hop with psych-pop to bring their R&B soul to the masses. From down under, here's Winston Surf Shirt off their Apple Crumble record with For the Record on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy this one. I just want to say the photo record. Like you want Alright, take out my shoes Cause 